Okay, let's get another voice in here. We're going to chat with Melissa Cowett, Western Canadian public policy professional and the principal of MC Consulting. Melissa, thanks so much for taking some time today. I appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me, Shay. So what we saw play out last night, um, I'm a little surprised that Smith won on the sixth ballot. Conventional thinking and a lot of the party insiders I had spoken to said Daniel Smith wins on the first ballot or she doesn't win. She's not going to be seeing a lot of down ballot support. Were you surprised by the way it played out? I actually was not surprised that she didn't win on the first ballot. You know, when I was looking um, at the numbers in a very sort of unscientific way, but just sort of segmenting out like who of the 124,915 members, which of those people, you know, would have voted yes in Kenny's leadership review, which of them would have voted no, and where most of those new members sold, about 63,000 would have gone. And the math to me just never really added up for a first ballot win. I was thinking it would be more on the fourth ballot, but six ballots, I think, um, is, is a little bit surprising, even for people who didn't think she would win on the first ballot. It's very hard to do that in these kinds of ranked ballot races, especially when there are seven people in the race. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to the very last ballot. What does that say? What does that mean um, for Danielle Smith going forward? All over the text line, there are, and, and you've seen it, I'm sure, too, all over social media. She can't possibly consider this a mandate. She can't go forward. Oh, yeah, she can. She absolutely can. Uh, but what does it mean in terms of legitimacy and getting things done? Can she just, I mean, she is the premier, but what does it say about where she stands for the next six or seven months? Look, I think that the bigger struggle and um, and issue for her to tackle right now is a mandate from caucus, yeah. first and foremost, and then working on the membership as well. You know, I, I do understand people's concerns that are saying that, you know, only less than 2% of um, Albertans voted in this race. It's not a mandate. But the reality is, as you said in your intro, the United Conservative Party does have a mandate to be in government until next May. So I think what she needs to do is, and I believe she'll probably already be doing that, is making sure that caucus is is in a place where they can all sing from the same song sheet so that she eliminates the internal squabbling that we've been dealing with for the past two years so that at least going to party members and then after that, going to Albertans becomes a bit easier because you're legitimate as a united front. So I think that's actually her biggest, um, her biggest um, barrier right now um, to to governing without the distractions that we've seen uh, under Premier Kenny. I think you're absolutely right. I think before we can even talk about their chances heading into May, we first have to. Uh find out exactly how caucus is going to come together and if they're going to be united and if you're going to have one team going forward. And I don't think that's a foregone conclusion. I've covered a lot of leadership races over the years, Melissa. I don't ever remember four of the candidates coming together to stand on the stage and denounce the primary policy piece of another candidate. So um, we know that there's division within that caucus. She managed to win, but how does that, how does that wound get healed? I mean, they were very, 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 very divided throughout the campaign. Did they just put that in their rearview mirror now and we all forget what happened? I don't think we forget what happened, but I think that a lot of the frustration coming from those candidates who um, were coming out against Smith, um, and this is nothing to say whether you agree with her or not agree with her, but that was coming from a place of feeling like, wow, we didn't expect this was going to happen. And it, it sort of felt a little bit frantic when some of that was happening, which, you know, you can you can deduct as a bit of entitlement as well. So I think that for her, 
Um, she needs to set the tone with her leadership. It's really the ball is really in her court. So how does she treat those other candidates? Do many of them make it into cabinet, into key roles? I assume that they will. How does she treat people who she knows um, aren't her biggest fan? Does she excommunicate them or does she bring them back into the right. fold? I actually think she's going to do her best to keep the party together in that way. And, you know, it's it's conventional in leadership races. People are very mean to each other during the race. And the right thing to do if you're trying to keep the party together, if that is your goal, is to sort of get over those divisions very quickly after the race is done. And so I do think that you will see the majority, if not all of those candidates, um, do that because the risk of splitting the party at this point with a very strong and capable NDP as an opposition is really a risk of government losing government next May. And I think they understand that. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think uh, that's the first step. And I, th- I agree with you completely. That's immediately how you build bridges and sort of uh, put put aside some of the uh, bad feelings that may be there. Then the next question, and I wonder what you think will happen here, comes down to policy, because you're going to have Travis Taves, you're going to have Rebecca Schultz, you're going to have uh, all of them, except for Todd Lowen, that were in this leadership, as well as another uh, bunch of other MLAs, you know, including the premier who came out very strongly saying they would not support her principal piece, Bill 1, the Sovereignty Act. They're not on board. It's not going to happen. So does she bring that forward? Does she need to soften her stance? Does she risk her own party not supporting her signature piece of legislation on her first? I mean, how does that play out in terms of policy? How does she approach that over the next six months? So I think that consultation on this piece of legislation particularly with caucus, is going to be hugely important. Um, So, you know, her team, I'm sure, is already working on what this is going to look like. But caucus needs to be sort of comfortable with where the legislation is at. I'll remind everybody, most of caucus is not fundamentally opposed to the idea that Alberta should be pushing back against Ottawa, just as a concept. So most people are on board with that. It's really now getting into the how they do that. The Sovereignty Act is how Danielle um, wanted to do that. And so I think that there is room, if she works with people, to um, to make that piece of legislation not as charged as it was mm-hmm. during the campaign. And also if she supplements the introduction of that bill with a really smart communications plan so that people are not being confused about what the purpose of it is. People are not being confused that it is a suggestion that Alberta should separate. Like those are things that are going to need to be ironed out. But I think if she is collaborative about it, she, she will face some pushback, but I think she can introduce it. What it looks like, she's going to need some input from caucus on that. Um, and this this is all over the text line, and it's the obvious question. She got 53.5% of the vote. Jason Kenney got 51.5% of the vote. She's the new leader, and everybody is united, but Jason Kenney, it was so divided, he had to leave. Um, at the end of this exercise that we've gone through since May, um, where are we, Melissa? Has Have things gotten more united, less united? Has any of that been settled? Here's the difference, I think, between the situation with Kenny's leadership review and Danielle's win last night. It's the it's the nature of the group of people that were opposing each of these camps. So with Kenny, it was if we want to divide the parties into like former Wild Rose, former PC. With Kenny, it was former PC, uh, former Wild Rosers rather right. that were really upset with him. 
in the in Danielle Smith's case, it is more so along the lines of former PCers that are upset with her. Why does that matter? The more motivated faction in the UCP that would split, that would force um, a leadership review, is that former Wild Rose faction, and they're behind her. So for that reason, even though the numbers are quite similar, there's nuance in like what that group looks like and what it is likely they are willing to do to disrupt the leader. So I think that's the major nuance that, that makes Danielle's position slightly more secure than Kenny's position, even though it's not a full mandate um, from, from, from members in the way that you would expect from other leadership races in the 60-70%. Uh, one of the things that struck me last night is we get down to the final ballot, and it's Brian Jean's votes. And I think a lot of people who like Brian Jean were uh, dyed-in-the-wool wild rosers going back 10 years. And I was anticipating there'd be a lot of hard feelings for Danielle Smith, so I thought it would come right down to the wire. Do you think um, that that history that, that she has acknowledged many times throughout the campaign, the mistakes that she made, that Wild Rose faction, uh, Brian Jean, it looks like some of his supporters did go to her. I mean, is there some forgiveness there? Can we read into the tea leaves here that, you know what, maybe they're getting over that at this point? Yeah, and I think it kind of comes, if you are a voter that was upset about that, in your mind, what is the lesser of two evils, so to speak? Do you want sort of a Kenny-like government in Taves, or do you want something that's more reflective of perhaps those Wild Rose values? And I think that when that is the choice, even if people were still upset with Danielle, the choice for those people was probably very clear at that point, that yes, we are upset with what happened seven or eight years ago with her, but in the context of what the choice is, she would rank higher than, than Taves. Makes perfect sense. Melissa, thank you so much, as always. Great insight. I appreciate it. Thank you. That is Melissa Cowett, who is a Western Canadian public policy professional and principal of MC Consulting, a veteran of conservative politics in our part of the world. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.